This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Dr. Jason Lusk, a food and agriculture economist at Oklahoma State University. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Oklahoma State's Dr. Jason Lusk next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. You can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Oklahoma State food and agriculture economist Dr. Jason Lusk has conducted extensive research of consumer food buying patterns and impacts of new technologies. In over 15 years of research, he says, one trend is amazingly obvious. The the thing that really sticks out to me is how little people actually know about this topic. And so, yes, if you ask people in an opinion poll whether they would like a policy that requires mandatory labeling of GM foods, then, yeah, large percentages of of people say yes, probably 70, 80, 90 percent of people say yes. But if you just scratch even a little bit below that surface, what you will find out is they, they don't really know much about the technology. They respond to that question in that way because it sounds like, well, more information, how can that hurt? But they don't really know much about it. And so as a consequence, the other thing we notice is that if we really just give any reason why crops are genetically modified, for example, to reduce um, pesticide use or uh to make crops herbicide tolerant, which saves farmers time and allows them to adopt some practices like no-till technology, uh, then then consumers are, are fairly positive about the technology. So I, I think people's initial reaction is a skeptical one and a little bit of aversion, but it's not very deep by and large because people, what we often find is that when they learn a little bit about it, that they often come away with a bit more nuanced view. What can you say for the segment of our society that is considered an activist and adamantly opposed to GMO? Is their number growing, or are they speaking louder? It's hard to say exactly, because it's hard to to categorize someone in that activist camp or not. I mean, I do think it is clear, given the the ballot initiative that we've seen in several states now that there there is a a small minority of people that that minority I think is growing a bit over time um, that is concerned about this technology and, and are require you know are calling for requirements like labels and those sorts of things but I, I wouldn't say that's the majority of people um, I, I do think there's more interest today than there was say five ten years ago in the in the you know in in genetically modified crops. Um, and t- as far as the overall level of aversion goes, I'm not really sure about that. It's really hard to see in the data because we're talking about a very small percentage of the population. This falls into a debate over big ag. It seems to be that those who are promulgating this technology are associated with large agriculture industry, and those who are opposed show a distrust for both. You know, one of the, the really frustrating things about this debate, uh, from my standpoint, is 
that is relates to what you're saying is that genetic modification has served as a stand-in for people's concerns about a whole host of other issues, which have actually very little to do with genetic modification in the first place. So, for example, people don't like uh, using herbicides or pesticides in agriculture. Well, that's going to happen regardless of whether we use GM technology or not. Uh, and, and so it seems to me that it's actually, you know, deflected attention from from some other issues that, that probably people wish we would debate, be debating more about. And, and I think one of the real challenges, and, and for your listeners to pay attention to, is that, you know, genetic, GMOs are not a single thing. It, it, GMOs are many possible hundreds or thousands of different things. And so when people say GMOs aren't safe or GMOs do this or that, you know, that's a very vague statement that's really hard to defend or to um, to oppose because we've got to p- take a particular genetic modification and look at the effects of that modification, what effects it has on human health, the environment, farmer profits, and all those kind of things. But, yes, I wish, you know, in a lot of ways, ways I wish we just have a more honest debate. If, if you want to say, well, I think there is market power in agriculture. I don't like these big seed companies out there having some market power. Well, let's talk about that. But again, that's not an issue that's unique to genetic modification. That's been around well before that happened, and it will uh, will likely be around even if we didn't use genetically modified crops. I was too young to be aware, but I am told that during the process that hybrid seed corn was coming along, that there were similar concerns shared uh, among consumers and those in industry about accepting that new technology that today is accepted science. In the 1930s or so, it, it wasn't immediate adoption of hybrids. It, it took some period of time, and even among farmers, to decide to do that because it meant that even back then they couldn't have the same level of productivity if they saved back their seeds and used them that way. So it took a new change even in the way farmers operated, and that took some time for them to change. But I, I think the general story that we get at in terms of technological adoption is true, especially when we're talking about something like food, and, and that is that, that new technologies, new innovations are often initially greeted with skepticism, whether it's the refrigerator or whether it's the microwave or anything like that. They, you can see lots of examples throughout history where people were afraid of technologies, uh, pasteurization is another one, that now we think of as totally normal and, and as actually very helpful in a lot of cases. From my observation, it appears that our regulatory system is on trial and in the court of public opinion. If you believe the U.S. Department of Agriculture and their approval process, if you accept the FDA and their approval process for technologies, then you would look at their statements on genetically enhanced crops and their ingredients that this is safe. Yet the public, and at least a portion of the public, is pushing back saying they disagree. They're not accepting the science. There's a little bit of schizophrenia here. In, in general, I think most of the time when you ask people whether they trust the FDA or USDA, that, that those agencies enjoy a high level of trust among the general public. They, they, they believe the food that we eat is generally safe and, the, and that those agencies are doing a good job. But you're right. When you took, take a look at certain processes or practices that they've approved, you may find aversion to that. You know, I, I, what I would say that I think is important is there, there's a lot of conspiracy theories going around out there, you know, people kind of putting on their tinfoil hat and saying, well, you know, these big agribusinesses have gotten inside and infiltrated those agencies, and that's the only reason these products got approved. Okay, well, even if you believe that, then how is it true that these same products have gotten approved in many other countries around the world? And people have this belief somehow that GM crops are not approved in Europe, for example, but that's just not true. A lot of them have been approved there. Yeah, it took a longer time period. 
period, and it was a longer process, but they have entirely different agencies, entirely different regulatory process, and, and many of our same crops that are approved here were approved there and, and are planted in some European countries, not all of them. And so I, I think, you know, I would be a little bit careful about saying that there's some conspiracy going on inside our regulatory agencies, and I think... In general, I think that's one of the one of the challenges here is that, that all of our major scientific authorities out there, not just USDA or FDA, but National Academy of Sciences, American Medical Association, even the World Health Organization, have made statements to the effect saying that crops produced through genetic engineering are no riskier than crops produced through other traditional plant breeding methods. Do you think the push for labels is more about safety or more about marketing? You know, I, I think the people in the the advocate for the labels initially didn't make a very strong distinction between there, and I think at least the leaders of that movement have backed off a little bit and say, well, okay, we're going to concede the science and say that it's just that, that these, and we're not saying they're not safe, although there are a lot of organizations tied to them that that make those claims. Um, and, and so what they'll, they'll in, instead say is this is really about a, a consumer's right to know. Okay, we can debate that if we want. But I think what you can certainly see in the marketplace is when we've had ballot initiatives in states like California or Oregon or Colorado, that the donations to that cause that are advocating for the labels generally are companies that would benefit from that sort of label. So it would be organic products, quote-unquote natural food sellers. And so, yeah, I think there is a big marketing motivation going on here that, uh, especially if we made our competitors have to put this label on their product, that would really help our market share. More consumers would buy our product that's saying they don't have genetically engineered crops. So I I think it is a mix of the two, and, and both of them matter. The food industry has suggested a national voluntary labeling standard suggesting that they cannot survive in an environment where there might be 50 different states with 50 different sets of rules with regard to food labels. Why is it important that we have a standard answer, and is voluntary enough? So I, I think the important thing here is is not to say that the food companies can't survive. Of course they can. The question is, what's the cost? And if we have 50 different states have 50 different uh, standards and, and labeling requirements, the consequence of that will be higher higher food costs um, because these are having to comply with a bunch of different regulations are going to make, make our food system more expensive. So I, I think it's really just a question about trade offs and, and what you're what you're willing to accept to do that. I, I think from the food company's perspective, the argument they would probably make is to say. You know, having a national standard would will allow us to um, meet consumers' demands in a more uniform way without having to have 50 different, you know, regulatory environments, 50 different labels, and 50 different um, formulations for our products. And so, the benefit to the con- consumer, therefore, would from their argument would be that that they're not going to incur these higher regulatory costs um, that, that they'd have to pass along. What are probable costs if there is? a national labeling standard as opposed to 50 different states and 50 different standards. Right. So I think either either way we go about it, if mandatory labels on GM foods are required, you know, the question is how much is that going to cost the final consumer? And, and I think there's a lot of debate here. The people that advocate on behalf of these labels say, well, there's very little cost. Food companies change their labels all the time. And Basically, the cost is just the the price of the ink that goes on the food packaging, and there's a little bit of element of truth to it. 
to that. Of course, they're right. Food companies change labels frequently. I think the larger cost that some economists are worried about is the cost of what the labels will cause food companies to want to do. And I think the, the fear from, from some food companies is, is losing customers. And if they know they have to put a label that says this product contains genetically engineered crops, they feel like that's putting a a skull and crossbones in their product, and they don't want that. They don't want to lose market share to other companies that wouldn't have that label. And so they would, the the argument goes, start switching to try to source non-GM crops. And that is more expensive. It's more expensive to produce corn and soybeans and cotton and other things using non GM crops, and so that cost has to go somewhere, and it's in all likelihood going to go to food consumers. And their estimates vary, but you know it could be anywhere from four hundred to five hundred to six hundred dollars per per family per year is 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 sort of the estimates I see batted around a lot. Um, but I think in my mind, the, the larger potential costs are, are not just the the costs of the, the higher food prices that that, that food, food consumers may pay, but Rather, if you have all the food companies out there saying we're not going to source products that are genetically engineered, that really puts a damper on research and development into these crops and technologies. So the real cost are, are possibly the, the foregone opportunities, the, the new technologies we would have had, but that we won't see because we've got a market environment that's hostile to those technologies. Is the debate over food labeling as polar yet as climate change? And where are they similar and how are they different? It's getting there, <laughs> that's for sure. One way in which they're similar is uh, there was a recent survey by the Pew Foundation, and they surveyed scientists and they surveyed the general public. And the two issues for which there was the largest gap between what the average scientist thought and what the average person thought was for climate change and GMOs, but GMOs was even even wider. Something like 80% of scientists think currently approved genetically engineered crops are safe to eat whereas it's almost the inverse in terms of the average consumer. So that particular technology, GMOs, there is the widest gap between where the sort of average scientist stands and the average consumer stands. The gap isn't as large for uh, global warming, but they are similar in that regard. And so I think they're similar in that way. Of course, the political dynamics are are very different in terms, I think, of who um, the political parties and the political affiliations that get tied with the different sides there one one thing that you often see reported is that one thing I've heard said is that GMOs are the are the climate change problem for people on the left. So you know the the argument goes that people on the right were denying the science when it's uh, climate change, but now people on the left are denying the science now that it's GMOs. I'm not so sure that's all that accurate. Whenever we look at just opinion polls, there's not a huge partisan divide in terms of who is more or less accepting or averse to GMOs. I think where the partisan divide comes in is when you start looking at regulation. And, and at least what we've been able to see is that um, sort of political left are much more likely to be in favor of mandatory labeling, for example, than people are on the right, even though there's not a big difference in terms of um, the underlying aversion to the issue. From the agriculture perspective, they obviously watch Washington closely for legislation and for regulation that would affect their business. But it seems now in the case of genetically enhanced crops or genetically modified crops that, again, the public opinion that the retailer is having an impact on the products that will be purchased and the products that are offered to their customers and their stores. So in essence, the consumer is now telling the producer how to raise livestock and which crops they can raise and which they can't. So I think we ought to, you know, 
on one hand, we ought to celebrate the fact that we, we live in a market economy and that, that me as a food consumer, that, that my, my wallet has some power, that the things I want out of the food system, um, that, that I can demand things and, and retailers will, will provide them. And so I think that's actually, a, in some ways, a positive sign to see that retailers and producers respond to consumer demands. Now, you know, the, I think the challenge is that, that sometimes we as con- food consumers may ask for things without really realizing the consequences of the things we're asking for, particularly when we move over to the regulatory environment, that there could be unintended consequences of the policies we ask for. And so, you know, in the case of, of some of these, you know, food labels, for example, if someone is willing to pay a premium, to pay the extra price it costs to have um, meat or or crops from or foods from crops that are non-GMOs uh, produced in alternative ways, and they're willing to pay the premium to do that, I think I think there's no problem with that. Now, you may say we we want to make sure consumers are well informed, that they they understand the consequences of their decision. But, you know, ultimately, I think the people with the money in their wallets have the power, and I think that that's the way it should be. Um, but we could also, I think, try to do a good job making sure consumers make informed choices, making sure that the policies that are being asked for don't have unintended consequences, impose costs on other people who are not willing to pay those premiums. I think those are where the real challenges come in. If you're testifying before a Senate committee on GM labeling, what's your advice? <laughs> it, it's, uh, I think that's a difficult issue. I think, um, you know, as an economist, I would try to approach it from, from looking at the costs and the benefits and the consequences of that particular policy. And um, I think just simply showing an opinion poll saying that 80% of people want this is not a particularly useful thing to do. I can do that with lots of things. I think, uh, you know, one survey result I put out a few months ago that, that got a lot of attention. I asked people, for example, do you want a mandatory label on foods that contain uh, DNA? And about 80% of people said yes to that, too. Now, that doesn't mean we want to <laughs> advocate for a label that requires basically a label on all food. Anything that was living is going to have DNA in it. Um, and, and so, you know, you got to move beyond just simple opinion polls and I think look at the actual consequences that these policies policies would have um, to real-life food consumers and their wallets and their budgets and, and the progress of that technology in the future. And that's the kind of thing I'd start to look at when, when trying to provide answers to that question. But again, I think we can draw a distinction between what we're going to require and mandate on the one hand um, and then what we allow producers to voluntarily or food companies to voluntarily market and do with themselves on the other hand. And for me, one of the big issues with this label when we get to mandatory issues is sort of a philosophy about when do we want the federal government to be able to require any producer to, to make a certain claim. And I think you could make an argument that, that we would do this, for example, if there's a demonstrable health or, or safety impact. So, for example, we know the number of calories you eat has some impact on your body weight. And so you can at least make some kind of argument that, okay, food companies should require to put, be required to put calorie labels on. But at least in the case of the genetically modified crops, the best scientific information we have available to us suggests there's no health or safety risk. So what philosophy are you following then to say the government would then require uh, farmers and food companies to put this label on when, when the best science we have says that it doesn't have any impact on, on human health. And so I, I think, you know, one really has to look at the philosophy, I think, of, of when we want the government, want to allow the government to require information to be disclosed and, and when it can't. 
Dr. Les, we want to thank you for spending time with us here on Open Mic. It is an Open Mic, sir, and the audience is yours. Sure. So, uh, you know, one thing I, I think I'd encourage your listeners to do is to, to take a little more, bit more of a positive uh, view about food and agricultural technologies. I have a new book coming out this spring called Unnaturally Delicious. And one of the things I do is, is spend each chapter with a scientist or an entrepreneur or a farmer who's adopting a new food or ag technology. And they're not just doing this for the fun of it. They're doing it because it can improve human health or the environment or help feed people in other parts of the world. So I think we can all agree that we have some real challenges facing us in the world of food and agriculture. And the question is, how do we deal with those challenges? And at least in my mind, one of the most effective ways of dealing with, with the big challenges we have in food and agriculture is not to turn our back on technology, but rather to uh, warmly embrace it and, and use it in a way that can make our lives better. Our thanks to Oklahoma State University's Dr. Jason Lusk, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.